0: Psalm 92, and 93 is a very short one, and 94 is a longer one, and we'll see how far we get in these two or three psalms. But uh, we'll take them verse by verse, as we always have, and try to see the good things in there, and see what we need to study. In Psalm 92, verse 1, it says, It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord, and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. Now, we need to express our gratitude to the Lord. This is something that we need to do all the time. And by the way, it helps us and it helps others if we will be mindful of God's goodness. Notice it says, it is a good thing. Has anyone ever disputed that it's a good thing to give thanks to God? We certainly should not. And uh, notice it says, it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. In Isaiah 57, let me read a verse of scripture for you. Isaiah 57 and verse 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Though God is high and holy, and dwells and inhabits eternity, and his name is holy, yet, it says, he dwells, dwell in the high and holy place with him also, that is, of a contrite spirit. See, God is near to those that have a contrite spirit and humble spirit. And it says to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. Isn't it amazing that though God is so high and so holy, so pure, and all of his majesty and all of his glory, yet he condescends in grace to dwell with those that are humble and contrast. And that, that's always amazed me that God could condescend in grace to reach down to us. We sing the song about the gulf that God did span at Calvary. And he spanned the mighty gulf between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and to bring both together in, in uh, one fellowship and unity because of what Christ's uh, death on the cross and his sacrifice for us. So it's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. You know, it should be a part of our daily life, morning and night, morning and night, all the day, a part of our daily life. Ephesians 5, verse 19. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. Notice what it says here. It says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a thanksgiving text, isn't it? Giving thanks. When are you? When? Always. What? For what? All things. How? Unto God. In the name. Unto whom? Under God. And and how? In the name of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. You have when? Always. You have what? All things. Under whom? Under God the Father and the Father. And then how. Everything that we do has to be through the mediation of Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, the Bible expresses time and time again in so many ways that Jesus is the one and only mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Look back in our psalm. Verse three says, "Well, by the way, in verse two it says to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night." God's loving kindness and faithfulness is what we're to remember morning and night. And then in verse three, upon an instrument of ten strings, upon the psaltery and upon the harp, with a solemn sound. In other words, we find there are various ways to praise God, and instruments—various instruments—are to be used. In verse four, for thou Lord. Has made me glad through thy work. He has made us glad. And he says, I will triumph in the works of thy hands. He's made us to triumph. In verse uh, 5, it says, O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. Four things here. He makes us glad. He makes us victorious. Think of his great works, verse 5, and his thoughts toward us. God's thoughts toward us. God should be praised for all of these reasons. It says, For thy Lord, remember in verse 1 it says, A good thing to give thanks and to sing praises. In verse 4 it says, For thy Lord, has made me glad. We need to thank God for making us happy. Making us glad. Providing us with joys. Remember when Jesus was born, good tidings of great joy which shall be unto all people. Good tidings of great joy. And if God's word and and the provision God has made doesn't make us glad. There's something drastically wrong. And then it makes us victorious too. Look at this, verse 4. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. He's made me glad through thy work, and I will triumph in the works of thy hands. 2 Corinthians, let's see if I can find it. 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 2 and verse 14. Now thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. You see, we're not losers, and we're not ones that are defeated. It says, Thanks be unto God, that includes the praise and thanks, which always, that's the time, every time, always, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and make manifest the Savior of his knowledge by us in every place sometimes when we feel like we're defeated, we're really not. We're just taking a little time out. That's all it is. And sometimes we have to take a time out and get refreshed. Remember, the Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord. And sometimes when we get low, we need to encourage ourselves and come back to our roots and come back to our stability and come back to the foundation and come back to where we find our strength. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And then look at, again in verse 5. It says, O Lord, how great are thy works. Think of God's great works. There's no way to estimate the greatness of God's works if we look at creation, if we look at all that he's done, and then especially the work of redemption. And thy thoughts are very deep. Who can comprehend God's thoughts? Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Let me read this one for you. In Jeremiah 29, in verse 11, it says this. It says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Look at that. I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Sometimes our thoughts are not what they should be, but he says, uh, thoughts of peace and not of evil. See, God's thoughts toward us are of peace and not of evil. Our thoughts are uh, sometimes trying to be conniving, trying to take advantage, trying to figure out, trying to manipulate, trying to do all things, and, you know, we have all kinds of thoughts. Some come across our minds that are not even good at all, but evil. And you know what we need to do when those thoughts come across our mind? It doesn't mean we don't have them, but they do come across our mind. It means we need to replace them with good thoughts. See, when you have evil thoughts come across your mind, you say, Boy, I wish I didn't think that. Well, put good thoughts there, because your mind has to be filled with something. And don't fill it with trash. Don't fill it with corruption. Don't fill it with evil. Start filling it with good. Fill it with the Word of God. When thought, evil thought come across your mind, a quote a scripture. Nothing wrong with that, is it? Quote a scripture. And uh, keep uh, the word of God. It says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that what? I might not sin against thee. And so we need not only to have God's word out where we can read it and study it, but we need to have it inwardly where we can remember it and quote it and, and speak it. We need to speak scripture. And then... Uh, Look it back in our psalm. Always hold your place where we're studying in the psalm. It says, uh, and thy thoughts are very deep. In verse uh, 6 it says, A brutish man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. The foolish are spiritually ignorant. Daniel 12, 10 tells us that the wise shall understand. Let me read this for you. In Daniel 12 it says, Many shall be purified and made white. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked, none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. You see, the wicked do not understand spiritual things. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, Paul says, first Corinthians I believe two fourteen. For he says they're foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That's why the world and the worldly wise do not understand the things of God. It takes the spiritually inclined, it takes the spiritually possessed to understand spiritual things. And, you know, it's, it's just too far-fetched to believe that the, the brutish man can, it says here in the text, a brutish man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. He doesn't understand God's great works, he doesn't understand God's power, he doesn't understand God's provision. Now then, verse 7 says, When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. The doom of the wicked. The Bible says the wicked shall be turned into hell, and all nations that forget God. The wicked. God is going to judge the wicked. You know, we live in a society that thinks God is just all good. God's all good, but God's all just too, and righteous, and holy, And he's going to judge wickedness and sin. He's not like these mealy-mouthed people we see all over the world. Well, you know we just can't do this because it might hurt someone. God is going to hurt someone someday. Judgment is coming upon sin and sinners. And if not now, later on. And he's in no hurry. The Lord is long-suffering, us, not once willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, but there's a day that his patience will wear out. It wore out with the, the wicked world in Noah's day, and he brought judgment upon the whole earth, right? It wore out in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah when Abraham uh, interceded for Lot, and the cities of the plain were destroyed. He he got fed up with Belshazzar, and he said this night, he said, your kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to the Medes and the Persians. And in that night was Belshazzar slain. You see, God has an end to His patience. And uh, sometimes we don't uh, understand that He's a God of judgment. The doom of the wicked. In uh, Job 21, let me read this for you. Job chapter 21, and verse, verse 30. It says this, that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction, they shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. They've reserved. God has them kept ready for the day of destruction because they will not repent and turn to God. So the righteous are going to be rewarded and God's people are the righteous, made righteous by the, blood, the shed blood of Christ. There is none righteous apart from him, no, not one. All that sin comes short of the glory of God. But we have righteousness that is imputed to us. The last two verses of Romans chapter 4 tells us, the last three verses tells Abraham was uh, believed God, and it was imputed, it was counted to him, reckoned to him for righteousness. And it says, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed, it, or righteousness, was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it or righteousness shall be imputed if, listen, if we believe on Him who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, then what's going to happen to us? God says, I'm going to count you righteous, reckoned, legally declared to be righteous. We look at one another and we say, No, you know, we know that we see each other's faults and failures. We look inside and we see our own. We say, well, surely I'm not righteous with all my problems. You look out and you say, well, I know they're not, because look at them. Probably we have more in here than there is out there, but nevertheless, we evaluate ourselves and others, but God looks at us. Aren't you thankful that he can overlook all that and say, through Christ shed blood, I declare that person to be righteous in my sight, regardless of all their faults and failures and sins and shortcomings. That's the way we are before God. That's pure grace, isn't it? That's sovereign grace. We don't deserve that. But Jesus said, I'm going to give it to you anyway. We're not deserving people. And then the Lord's power is forevermore. Look at verse 8. It says, But thou, Lord, art most high forevermore. God will never change. He's the eternal. The eternal God is thy refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Okay, verse 9, look at verse 9. It says, For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. God's enemies shall meet their doom as well. The Bible says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Remember that wonderful Psalm 2? Psalm 2, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine the vain thing? The kings of the earth... Uh, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us break their bands asunder and cast away their courts from us they do not want anything God have anything to do with them it says he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh the Lord shall have them in derision then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure he says yet have I set my kingdom upon my holy hill of Zion I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me thou art my son this day have I begotten thee," he said. "Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession." And on and on. This psalm tells us to rejoice in the fact that Jesus is the one that's promised to be the victorious. Even though the rulers and kings set counsel against him, they did and they put him to death. But he rose again the third day and was exalted to the right hand of God, and preached by the apostles and the New Testament Christians all over, and is to this day, the churches still exist. You know, people say, well, Christianity one of these days will be gone completely. Not so. Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against me. There will be churches when Jesus comes again. There will be churches that are not doing exactly right, but there will be churches that are trying to stay true. And I'm glad that there's going to be an element that will be here that will be true to God's Word. And by the way, it's getting fewer and far between. Because the Bible tells us that wicked men seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And Paul said, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. It sickens me to see churches and seminaries turn for all kinds of foolish things when there's so much more important things to do than to just, you know, clown and circus around. Kind of broke my heart. I read in the the little ABC News, and the enrollment's up. I'm glad of that. At uh, Arlington Baptist in, in Fort Worth. At Arlington rather now. But anyway, Arlington Baptist College. Used to be Bible Baptist Seminary where I attended, But anyway, it breaks my heart to see some of, the, some of the staff to try to promote funds for some of the worthy cause, don't misunderstand me, but to turn around and have this swallowing goldfish or kissing a pig. Can you imagine that? It, it turns my stomach. You might find that around in a, you know, if you're going to a circus, you might see some foolishness like that. In fact, it's not very good taste even there, but... Man, can you imagine kissing the pig? Golly! But uh, to imagine for seminaries to do that—and that's where I went to school—but uh, the other things are good, and I'm not—I'm just saying that it's—it's all—it's always a shame where some of these hopshaws get such an idea that this would be good. Where do you ever get such an idea that foolishness like that? The Bible says the thought of foolishness is what sin. thought of it, let alone doing it. And to me, that's foolish. And uh, I don't understand why that we can't come back to preaching and teaching the Bible and leaving all that comic stuff alone. Just forget it. It has no place in churches. It has no place in seminaries. It has no place in Christianity. If you want to go to a circus, go to one and see the clown out there. But don't bring him into the church. Don't have him on the parking lot. Don't have him anywhere. Because that's a different element. It's not that all of them are bad. I'm not saying that. And there's a place for fun. There's a place for laughter. There's a place for uh, things that people want to do for entertainment. But it's not in the house of God. And it certainly shouldn't be where you're teaching preachers how to preach. But a lot of them get off on that. And if anything irritates me, that does. You can see that, can't you? (laughs) If I haven't talked about it long enough, I'll keep on a little while, and then, you, then you'll know for sure that it does. Okay, let's look at the next verse. It says, uh, verse 9, The doom of the enemies, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, was the last reference I gave you in, the, in Psalm 2, but let's look at uh, verse 10, God's servant will be exalted. It says, But my horn shall thou exalt like the horn of the unicorn, I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Well, that's that's the thing we need, isn't it? God's servant is exalted. Remember the publican and the Pharisee. Jesus was telling them, "For a man that is exalted, he that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humble himself shall be exalted." It says two men went up to the temple to pray. One, the publican, the Pharisee, and what happened? One prayed, "Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like other men are." Why are not you? I fast twice a week, I give tithe of all that I possess, and I do this and I do that. You know, God knows everything you do anyway. You don't have to tell him what all you do. And then, he says, uh, and even to this man, that old publican, he felt so sorry about himself, he said, he would not lift up his eyes even to heaven, but spoke upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when he said that, you know what he was really saying? God, propitiate for me a way to approach your presence by sacrifice, propitiation, merciful. The mercy seat, he was referring to the mercy seat. It wasn't the sinner's prayer especially that got him into God's presence. It was the fact that he was coming through a propitiation. And that was included in his request, all right. But he wanted to approach God only through sacrifice. And by the way, that's the only way God can be approached. And that's the sacrifice and, and, and the atoning work of Jesus it tells us in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore let us come boldly by a new and living way which he hath consecrated us for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. By the blood of Christ. It says come boldly by the blood of Christ by a new and living way. And by the blood of Christ means that it's ever fresh just today as it was when Jesus died on the cross and the veil in the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And so right now it's just as virtuous for us as it was for the Jew then and there, for the people then and there, when Jesus died and that veil was opened up. So we can come into God's presence knowing we have the way paid for, the way opened, and the way provided. And then it says, it tells us in the Scripture to draw near, and it tells us also that to come boldly that we may obtain grace and find Obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm quoting from Hebrews chapter 6 and also Hebrews chapter 10. Okay? No, it's 4 and 10. I beg your pardon. Okay. Let's go back to this. Uh, In verse 10, God's servant is exalted. But my horn shall thou exalt. horn speaks of salvation and power. My horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of the unicorn. And it says, I shall be anointed with fresh oil. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Have you ever thought about what fresh oil really is? I shall be anointed with fresh oil. it's symbolical, typical of the Holy Spirit. And you know, we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in the book of First John that you have an anointing, an unction from the Holy One and needeth not that any man teach you now, does that mean that you don't need teachers or preachers? That's not what's talking about. It means that because God has ordained teaching. But on the other hand, John was saying that when it is taught, you have a teacher, a teacher that is above man, and he gives you understanding of what is being taught, and you have a real divine teacher, that unction from the Holy One, and you can tell if he's teaching you through the instrumentality of human servants of God. And the Holy Spirit is the one that will teach you through what I say, but it, and the preachers say, and the teachers say, but he's the one that is the true teacher. And if he doesn't teach you while I'm teaching, you probably won't learn anything. That's true, because see, the words will fall to the ground. But God says, My word shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish the purpose for unto I have sent it. And God's Holy Spirit is sent to bear witness to the truth. The Holy Spirit has to bear witness to what is said. And when he does, you learn it. And you say, well, that's true. And your heart tells you it's true. And the Spirit of God tells you it's true. And if it's a false statement, you can cut Remember they examined Paul's preaching to see where they, everything he said was true? It says those Bereans were more noble than those of Thessalonica. In that they searched the Scriptures daily and they were testing Paul's words. And if a preacher's words will not stand the test, you have a right to refuse them. But if they stand the test, and the Holy Spirit convicts you and this is the truth of God, you're obligated to receive it too. So it has a two-sided effect. All right, let's look at verse, I shall be anointed with fresh oil, and oil is symbolical of the Holy Spirit. Mine eye also shall see my desire on mine enemies, and my ears shall hear my desire... Of the wicked that rise up against me, God, God's man and God's people will witness what happens to their enemies. Have you ever seen people rise up against the church or rise up against Christians, and you just look out there? Well, God's taking care of it, and sure enough, He does. He has a way of doing it. You and I don't have to worry about it one bit. Oh, we think we got to get in the battle, and we got to, you know, have a what do you call it? The, the, a, some kind of march, or some kind of resistance, or some kind of this, or some kind of that. God has a way of taking care of it. In the community, in the state, or in the nation, or in the world. You see, the Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Say, so, oh, uh, what's his name? Yeltsin was over here laughing with Clinton. We have all these big shots of all over the world. God has control of it. In due time, He'll take care of the situation. And uh, sometimes we say, well, if we don't do this, this will not happen. Sometimes we do this, it'll happen anyway. You know, because uh, God even permits wickedness and dictators and, and, and evil to rule, rule for a while that he may turn it for, for uh, his glory and the good of his people. He did Pharaoh, didn't he? Pharaoh kept the Israelites under oppression for 400 years. And God said, well, he told uh, Abraham, he predicted it before, he says they'll uh, go down there and they'll uh, be afflicted for 400 years. And he says, after that, I'm going to bring them out. And he says, the reason they're going to be there 400 years is the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. He said, I'm just waiting till the proper time. The iniquity of the Amorites, he told Abraham, was not yet full or would not be full until the time appointed to bring Israel out from Egyptian bodies. That was predicted way back in the book of Genesis, I think, 15th chapter. So God knows what he's doing. It may take time for him to do it because he tells us to be patient. But mine, I also shall see my desire upon, on mine enemies and mine ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. By the way, the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It says it tells us not to avenge ourselves because he has charge over it. The righteous will be like good trees. Look at verse uh, 12. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. The palm tree symbolizes beauty and fruitfulness. And the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. God is going to make your life beautiful and fruitful if you will let it. And it says, He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. The cedar is an emblem of strength and He'll give some permanence to your life Some stability And some strength The cedar The lofty cedar In Lebanon And then I want you to notice the next verse It says Those that be planted in the house of the Lord Shall flourish in the courts of our God Look at that Well developed Christians Are found planted in God's house the Bible tells us to walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. We need to be planted in God's house. Look in Colossians chapter 2. Let's see if I can find it. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7. It says, Rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Rooted and built up in him. Established in the faith. What did it say? Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. The best place you can be is in the house of God. And the best strength you'll find is in the house of God. It's as if you were planted there and flourish in the courts of our God. Strength comes. Well-developed Christians are found planted in the house of God. The Bible says, Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, it's amazing, Brother Randy and I were talking about it, how you prepare a sermon, you get something ready, you want to feed the people, and the very folks that need the message that you gave, that would give that night, are prepared. They're not there. And that happens so many times. You know, Thomas was not with them when Jesus met. And his, when Jesus met with them, Jesus met with the disciples and showed them his hands and his feet. And that was Thomas's problem. He couldn't believe it, see. The next time, Thomas was there. Now, if he'd have been there the first time, his problem would have been solved. But he wasn't there. And then it says, the next time they met, Thomas was with him. And Jesus knew what his problem was. And he said, Thomas, reach hither your finger. Thrust it into my hand. Reach hither your hand. Thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believe him. Well, then Thomas you know, it was answered. And he says, my Lord and my God. He confessed Christ is the real one that was crucified, buried, and risen. He didn't believe in the resurrection. But then he was convinced. And Jesus said, Thomas, seeing thou hast believed. Listen carefully. Seeing. Some people have to see to believe. But he said, blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed. See, we haven't seen with our natural eyes. Thomas saw with his natural life. And it took that to convince him. You know, have you ever heard people say, if Jesus was here and I could just see and know, you know, and have that personal contact, then I could come near and believe it. No, not necessarily. Because many didn't believe and he was there. But you and I have the privilege of the, re- of the full record of God's Word, the good news of the Gospel, the whole truth of God's Word, the full revelation of God and all Scripture given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And we have God's Word. And all we have to do is believe God. We don't have to speculate or wonder or wonder if our eyes have fooled us. If we were deceived by our vision, you know, sometimes people see something they really don't see. Have you ever gone down the road and say, there's so-and-so in the car. Come find out you get up there and it was someone else. You just you could almost swore that was the person. You kind of identified with the kind of car they drove and maybe some resemblance or maybe uh, just in your thought, that was them for sure. And it may not have been them at all. I've done that in my time. I thought, well, man, well, so-and-so turn around and find them out in another place, because it was not them. Peter says we have a more sure word of prophecy than eye vision. He was with Jesus on the holy mount, remember? And he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and we saw the coming and power of the Lord, but he said something else. He says even so, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Peter was convinced about his vision, and he was with Jesus on the holy mount, and the voice from heaven did come, and it was all real and true, everything he said, but he said, I want to point you to something, and that's the word of God. He said, we have a more sure word of prophecy, where unto you do well as you take ye, as the light that shineth in the dark place until the day dawn, and the day star arise in your hearts. For, he says, no prophecy of the scriptures is of any private interpretation. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And he says you can depend on God's word. And that's what he was pointing to. Is a light that shineth in the dark place. Well, where were we? Verse uh, 13. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bring forth fruit in old age. Look at that. They shall bring forth fruit in old age. Verse 13 tells us to live in daily fellowship with the Lord. And verse 14 tells us that age does not impair the fruit-bearing capabilities of God's people. They used to tell Dr. Oldham one time. Some of the younger men down there thought they could run the school better. They'd say, he's too old. But he got up one time and I heard him say very convincingly, some of you think I'm too old to do this job, but I'm not. And he wasn't. He wasn't too old until he got ready to quit. Let me read something for you. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 7, it says, And Moses was hundred and twenty years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. He served God right up to the last day of his life. <clears throat> he says, His eyes were not dim, and his natural force abated. See, God is the source of all of our strength, and we need to recognize that. The Bible says, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Christians who live their lives for God and bear fruit even in old age are a living testimony to God's goodness and to God's faithfulness. God is good. God is good to us. And if we recognize God's goodness and God's faithfulness, we sing a song, Even down to old age, All my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hair shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. And that's what we are. David said, I've been young and now I'm old, and yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed-baking bread. We find that God is uh, the, uh, with those that continue to serve him all the days of their life. The hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. See, that, those gray hairs are a crown of glory if they're found in the way of righteousness. But then there's some that go old and gray in the way of ungodliness too. That's why Proverbs 16, verse 31 says if it be found in the way of righteousness. You and I need to be careful how we live our lives and how we finish up. It's not so much how you begin. You need to begin right, but you need to continue as well. A lot of people say, well, you know, I used to. Well, never mind what you used to do. Do you still want to serve God? And as far as I'm concerned, that's all life is about. And from the time, by the way, when we first organized this church in 1959, I said to myself, Lord, give me a place and a people that I can preach to till the day I die. And my purpose hadn't changed till this day. Still the same way. I wanted a place to preach, and I wanted a place to preach the Word to a people that would hear it. And go out and get those that are roundabout. about. And I don't mean by that, don't win souls. I'm not talking about that, or don't witness. I'm talking about when you get them in the church, they need to be taught to. Because the Bible tells us that we're to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then it says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age of the world. And so that's our mission. It's not just one-fold, it's threefold, isn't it? It's not only to make disciples, but it's to baptize those disciples that are made, and it's also to teach them, and our mission is not completed until we're still teaching them to observe. That's why we need local churches. That's why people need to come to church. Psalm 93. Well, we didn't get 94... Uh, 92 Let's finish this last verse. They shall bring forth fruit and age. that's 14. They shall uh, be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. There is no unrighteousness in God. Then look at Psalm 93. This is a psalm of our great king. The nature of our king is seen in verse 1. The Lord reigneth he is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he uh, hath uh, girded himself. The world also established that it cannot be moved. The nature of the king. Notice the Lord reigneth. The king reigns upon the throne. He is clothed with majesty. He is a glorious king. First of all, he's on his throne, and he's a glorious king, and he's a powerful king. He's full of strength. The Lord is clothed with strength. He's not only clothed with majesty, but he's clothed with strength, wherewith to gird himself. And then it says, he has a well-established kingdom. The world also established that it cannot be moved. Sometimes we think the devil has this world, but it's going to return back to the Lord. The Bible says that he's coming and he's going to reign, rule and reign. Cleanse this wicked earth of sin and sinners. And reign in peace and righteousness. And the wolf and the lamb shall lie down together. All enmity will be dissolved even between beast creation and all between men and there will be a reign of peace and righteousness. All the wars like over in Bosnia and all over the world will cease. All the conflicts and all the misunderstandings, wherever they be, Russia, Europe, even our next door neighbors, Cuba, and all these things will all stop and Jesus will reign in peace and righteousness. You know, what would it be? What it would it be to be in a world where there was complete complete peace and no trouble, no strife, no envy, no uh, uh, fighting with one another? And that's what it will be. You and I can hardly imagine what it will be. In fact, it strange our imagination, doesn't it? But the, the Bible teaches that there's going to be a day like that. Look in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. In verse uh, 2, it says, Shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, that's in Jerusalem, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the, of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, that's good, and we will walk in his paths, that's, that's good too, isn't it? For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Talk about disarmament, that's going to really take place. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We won't have to have any military academies to train soldiers and sailors and, and different of armed forces. Neither shall they earn more anymore. In chapter 11, look at chapter 11 of Isaiah. Verse 1 There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch uh, shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, speaking of Jesus, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he and shall. Uh, Make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. Remember the sword of his mouth? And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Look. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones, shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the ass, or adder, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice, den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a day that's coming. It's a day that's coming after the the saints are taken up to heaven and after a tribulation of seven years upon this earth, and when Jesus comes back, as the book of Revelation chapter 19 says, the Lord is coming from heaven uh, on a white stallion and the armies of heaven follow him, He's coming back and he's going to judge a wicked and sinful world, get rid of the the beast and the false prophet, cast him into the uh, lake of fire and brimstone to be reserved until a thousand years later, and then the devil's going to be cast in with them. The devil will be put in hold for a thousand years. And then after that thousand years of peace and righteousness, there's going to be a great judgment, the white throne judgment, Revelation chapter twenty to find whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And if their name is not written, they shall be cast into the lake of fire, the Bible says.